we come to an amazing portion of Scripture this morning called the Sermon on the Mount. If anyone asks you the question, what is the greatest sermon ever preached in the history of church history? Would it be the sermon Billy Graham preached in an apartheid South Africa in the 70s? Would it be Jonathan Edwards' Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God? Would it be one of D.L. Moody's evangelistic sermons that sparked the Welsh revivals back in the mid-1800s? Would it be Charles Spurgeon teaching on Christ's elective power uh, there at Park Street Baptist Church there in London? Would it be Origen, an early church father? Would it be C.S. Lewis, Hudson Taylor, Martin Lloyd-Jones, Chuck Smith, John Piper? How about Tim Keller after 9-11? Greg Laurie at the first Harvest Crusade there in the 80s where uh, some 40,000 people showed up to hear the gospel at the Pacific Amphitheater. What about St. Augustine or John Calvin or John Wesley as John Wesley preached in the open air to the, to the uh, coal workers and, and, and all of the miners? As wonderful as these men are, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount has touched and changed more lives over millennia than any other sermon in the history of the church. If you were to Google the greatest sermon ever preached, it should, should I say, it should say the Sermon on the Mount. So we read in Matthew chapter 4 that Jesus began his public ministry. He was empowered by the Holy Spirit and he began to preach the kingdom of God in the region of Galilee. He was teaching in their synagogues and places of worship, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God. He was healing every kind of sickness and disease and great crowds began to amass and follow him to be healed or to listen to the words that he spoke because no one spoke like Jesus spoke and the authority he spoke with. Nobody had ever spoken with that kind of authority. Jesus went viral and spread all the way to Syria in the north, all the way down to Jerusalem in the south. And his popularity was very great. In the beginning of his ministry, he proclaimed these words. And we read in Matthew 4, 17, Jesus says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He proclaimed the kingdom of God everywhere, so naturally people wanted to know, what is the kingdom of God? And how can I be a part of it? And maybe that's your question here this morning. Maybe you're curious to know what the kingdom looks like, feels like, how it operates. Uh, The people that surrounded Jesus naturally asked, how do I become a part of this kingdom of heaven? How do I enter it? How do I have fellowship with God and experience his love and his grace? What is the key? What is the answer? So with all eyes on Jesus, he begins to speak about what governs this kingdom that he speaks of. And this kingdom is the kingdom manifesto, the Sermon on the Mount. He's going to describe what God's ways are like, which was nothing like the world's ways. In fact, when those who heard him with bated breath were shocked with what he had to say, others were embarrassed by it, but many embraced it. Jesus speaks in terms that are so contrary to the world that it forces the hearers to do one of two things. 
embrace him and his teachings or close off with pride and suffer the consequences. This message puts you in a position where you have to choose to choose the kingdom of God or the kingdom of this world. This sermon is not a buffet. Make no mistake about it. You can't pick and choose which parts to embrace and which parts to reject. These are hard teachings, but also life-giving to us if we embrace what Jesus says by faith. So Matthew chapter 5, 1 through 2, just by way of review, tells us that he saw the crowds and he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them. So when Jesus spoke, he was addressing a certain group of people. He wasn't addressing everybody. He was addressing disciples. Now, you may have heard that word, but may not understand what the word disciple truly means. A disciple isn't one who merely learns from their teacher, but it is one who imitates their master. The Hebrew word for disciple is the word Talmidium. You may have heard the word Talmud in the Hebrew. It means to become like, to imitate, and to follow. So this message was intended primarily for disciples of Jesus Christ. And those who were coming up as rabbis in that day were personally discipled by a prominent rabbi. You may read in the scriptures that Paul was discipled by a man named Gamaliel, who was the, who was the Hebrew rock star of the day. And that there was a saying where you would stick so close to your rabbis, the Jews would say, may he have the dust of his rabbi on him. In other words, you observed him constantly. You watched him eat. You watched him drink. You watched him sleep. You watched him build a fire. How he interacted with people. How he ministered to those around him. How he behaved. How he observed the natural order of things. You sought to understand the meaning of life from him and learn to think the way he thought and learned to live the way he lived. So Jesus here was only addressing his disciples, his followers that wanted not to just learn from him, but wanted to be like him and imitate him. And when he preached these words, only those who followed him and laid down their lives could truly glean the wonders of God from his grace and truth. Only disciples of Jesus can truly understand the meaning of life and the proper view of self. So let me ask you, do you hear from Jesus today? Are you truly following him and his ways, his words? Who is your master? Bob Dylan once wrote, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. So who do you serve? Only those who die to self and pick up their cross can truly understand him, can know what life is truly all about and experience the wonderful benefits that God has for his people. Following Jesus, you will know what it means to have happiness, contentment, and peace. Oh, don't get me wrong, there's struggles, no doubt. But you will know these things in Jesus Christ. There was a young man eager to grow in his Christian life. So he decided to get a piece of paper and make a list of all the things that he would do for God. He wrote down the things that he would give up, the places he would go to minister, 
and the areas of, of ministry he would enter. He was excited. So he took that list to the church and he puts it on the altar. He thought he, he thought he would feel joy, but instead he felt empty inside. So he went home and started adding to his list. He wrote down more things that he would do and wouldn't do. He took the longer list and put it on the altar, but he still felt nothing. So he went to a wise old pastor and told him the situation and he asked for his help. The pastor said, now take a blank sheet of paper, sign your name at the bottom and put that on the altar. The young man did. And then peace came into his heart. See, God just doesn't want most of you. He wants all of you. Now, before I get into our second beatitude, which is my assignment this morning, I really feel it's important to just review and lay out what these beatitudes are and why Jesus begins his manifesto with these. Now, the word beatitude comes from a Latin word, which means, get this, a state of happiness or bliss. In other words, Jesus is unfolding to his disciples the way to be happy, to be joyful, the path to happiness. In fact, each of these Beatitudes begins with blessed are, which means, oh, how happy or how fortunate or how blessed someone is. Blessed most likely indicates somewhat of an enviable state. When a person has acquired good fortune, we call him or her blessed. Jesus is identifying what truly makes a person happy, joyous, and fulfilled. Now, if I asked this room or any of you online, who here is looking to be happy? We would all raise our hands. There's no doubt about it. Everyone's on a quest to find fulfillment, rest, and peace, and most will look to the world to the, and the things in the world to try and be happy. But the Bible clearly says that no matter how much you search in this world for happiness, you will never find it. For the Bible tells us in 1 John 2, 16 and 17, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Now, isn't it exciting that Jesus here in these Beatitudes is going to show us the way to be happy, to be joyful, the way to find satisfaction and fulfillment. Do you have a desire to be fulfilled? Most people will spend an obscene amount of money to find happiness or change their identity, change their gender, indulge in fantasies, go to great lengths to become famous on social media platforms, or whatever else it is. And yet, today, we have the highest rates of suicide, anxiety, and depression in our culture than we've ever seen before. What the world has to offer, ladies and gentlemen, is not working. And it never has worked, and it never will work. It never has, and it never will. 
In fact, Jim Carrey was quoted, the great comedic actor, was quoted as saying this, quote, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. Now, it's important to note that this list that Jesus lays out for us looks nothing like the list that the world would lay out to be and to achieve happiness. If we have the right to pursue happiness, as our Constitution says, then this list would not be the road that people would travel to get there. This list is so antithetical that the world looks at this and thinks, this is ridiculous. In this list, you don't gain by winning. You gain by losing. And some of you here today are trying to find happiness by means of the world, and you're not finding it. Jesus tells us in Mark 8, 34, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet lose his soul? Your soul is your most valuable asset because it's the real you. It's what will live on for eternity. And yet some of you here today are selling just a little bit of your soul to gain happiness. And yet Jesus has a better way for you to gain that which you desire. And he longs to satisfy you with his version of happiness. The world would say, happy are the rich, the powerful, the noble, the beautiful, the successful. That's their version of happiness. And yet if you ask folks on that list, most will tell you that they have not found true happiness. I found out this week that uh, Kanye West and what's her name? Kardashian. Kardashian are getting a divorce and the whole world is just up. Just how could it be? They had everything. And yet we're seeing the crumbling of something that's not the foundation of God. I'm not trying to judge them. I'm just saying this is we find this all throughout. In fact, they'll they'll tell you that they found the opposite emptiness, purposelessness, a void they cannot fill. So they keep trying new things. Do you keep trying new things? Do you gain new possession and hopes? This is it, man. Have you ever gotten the thing that you wanted? And then after a while, it was great when you first got it. But then after a while, I just said, well, it just isn't cutting it. Now, as we read and study this sermon in the coming weeks, you will also notice that what Jesus says is impossible to live by. And you may say, well, Brett, if Jesus is showing us the way to true happiness, why is this impossible? Because you'll come to realize that it's impossible to live this way, this life, apart from the power and the inner working of the Holy Spirit in your life. And you'll also discover that external things can never satisfy internal needs making more money, moving to a bigger home, getting into a relationship, getting more likes will never satisfy you on a deeper level. It just leads to emptiness. Earthly things cannot bring you eternal joy and happiness. You may gain what you want for a brief moment, but it will only be temporary. As Mitch Mitch Jagger once wrote, what is it? I can't get no satisfaction. So what is the way to happiness? What's the key? It, well, it's not found in a possession, a position, or a pedigree. Happiness is found in a person. 
the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus presents us here with a new way of living, a new way of thinking, really a new way of being, which totally is contrary to the world's system. The way to happiness is a relationship with Jesus Christ to walk with him, to know him, to fellowship with him, to commune with him. In fact, Jesus says it this way in John 17, three, he says, and this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And when you read these Beatitudes, notice these are like, this is a progression. It's like steps. One leads to the other. It's like steps on a staircase that you, that leads you to higher ground and a higher knowledge of Jesus Christ. The difference is you don't climb the steps. Jesus takes you up the steps himself. Praise the Lord. God brings you up. And this list describes a person who has encountered, who has encountered God through the gospel, is changed and begins to see who he or she is in the light of who God is. It begins with a proper view of self. And isn't that where the problem lies? The problem is not your parents or your boss or your spouse or your friends. The problem is you and me, the one we look at in the mirror every day. My problems derive from me, my attitude, my actions. So in order to understand blessed are those who mourn, which is my assignment today, we must first understand the first step, the foundation, which I'll mention it briefly. And Buzzy did a fantastic job last week. I would recommend you go to our podcast and listen to it. But I just want to briefly describe this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. To be poor doesn't mean your bank account is empty. It doesn't mean that you don't have enough money to pay your bills. It is the realization that I am bankrupt before God. Before God. It means that I realize that I have nothing within myself to commend to God. Nothing. I am poor. In fact, the Greek word that Jesus uses here for poor is the Greek word tokos, which describes poverty in the most severe terms. It describes one that is reduced to a beggar that has to grovel for anything they can get. It is a realization of my own depravity and sinfulness apart from Jesus. It is an understanding that I am rebellious and without any moral virtue apart from Jesus Christ. I am unable to save myself. It's coming to grips with the fact that I am a failure before God. It's a posture of humility. It is to know that you have no spiritual assets to bring to the table to satisfy the holiness of God. It is a place of total and complete helplessness that there's nothing I can do to get me out of the disaster that I'm heading towards or the judgment that I deserve. In order to have a proper view of mourning, it must first start with an encounter of the holiness of God and seeing yourself in light of his holiness. You must first see your spiritual poverty before God. In the world, we always compare ourselves with others around us. And we can always pick something out of others that props us up, that props up our own sense of self-righteousness. But when we compare ourselves to God, the view of self becomes clear and frightening. 
In the sixth chapter of Isaiah, the prophet saw a vision of the Lord high and lifted up. And he saw the Lord seated on his throne and his, his, his train filled the temple. And there were angels flying around saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. He saw God on his throne and his response was this. Woe is me for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. He was in awe and terrified at the same time that he was standing in the presence of a holy God. And it was then Isaiah knew who he truly was. And he could not stand in God's presence. But an angel came and took a piece of coal from the altar, the Bible says, and touched his lips and cleansed him. God was able to stand Isaiah up through his mercy and forgiveness. And God comforted Isaiah at that moment, cleansing him of the offenses that he had committed towards God. This is a quote that I found called, How to Be Miserable. Think about yourself. Talk about yourself. Use I as often as possible. Mirror yourself continually in the opinions of others. Listen greedily to what people say about you. Expect to be appreciated. Be suspicious. Be jealous and envious. Be sensitive to slights. Never forgive a criticism. Trust nobody but yourself. Insist on consideration and respect. Demand agreement with your own views on everything. Sulk if people are not grateful to you for the favor shown them. And never forget a service you have rendered. Shirk your duties if you can. Do as little as possible for others. But this is true because it's not just what we do. This describes our nature apart from Jesus Christ. Ah, but when I realize my own spiritual derelict, my own poverty before God, he does something amazing. He tells me that his kingdom is for me and for you. Wait a minute. How can that be? God gives happiness only to those who realize their failures before him? Oh, yes. Only those who see their need for him. And God is looking to give peace and joy to those who realize they have nothing to offer him except for their sin. It's those whom God seeks out and desires to give his kingdom to. The kingdom begins in the heart. Oh, yes, there will be a physical kingdom. When Jesus Christ comes back today at three o'clock, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'll let it that out. Uh, he will come back, but he desires to give the, kid, uh, the kingdom a humble to humble hearts, a humble heart that is surrendered. A humble heart is a surrendered heart. It is the place where there is room for God to work. So it begins with the realization of spiritual poverty. And God begins to carry you at that moment up the steps to freedom. So what's the next step, which is my assignment here today? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Seems like an oxymoron, doesn't it? How can you be happy when you're sad? How can you be joyful when you're mournful? What on earth is Jesus saying here? People who mourn, don't seem to be blessed according to most other people. Jesus is contrasting the world's idea of happiness with true blessedness, with true spiritual prosperity. Oh, make no mistake about it. I believe in a prosperity theology, just not the way that the, 
The twisted church has described it. I believe in a, a, a spiritual prosperity of love, joy, and peace. And this comes from a right relationship with God, a right heart. The term mourn here means to experience deep grief and sorrow. In this case, it's deep grief over one's sinful condition. It's when you come to a place where the lights turn on in your heart and you agree with God about the evil in your own heart. In the book of Joshua, after Joshua took Jericho, the nation of Israel took their conquest towards the city of what is called Ai. Taking the last victory in Jericho for granted, they didn't pray or consult the Lord at all about a battle plan, and they just went on ahead and just attacked Ai, leaving the Lord out of the picture. God gave a command earlier that the spoil of Jericho belonged to him, that it was holy to him. There was a man named Achan and that in a moment of coveting weakness disobeyed the Lord, excuse me, by taking a cloak, some silver and gold and hiding them in the floor of his tent. And this act put not only, not only the whole army at risk, but the whole nation at risk. And as a result, the Lord wasn't with Israel in their attack against Ai. And they got their clocks clean. Excuse me, Miles, can you give me a drink of water, please? Thanks. Joshua and Israel mourned over this sin. Thank you, son. Mourned over this sin. It was this, it was this, that, that this mourning that they had over this sin that caused the Lord to have compassion on Israel. And as a result, the Lord used, get this, the Lord used their failed battle tactics the first time and implemented it into their battle plan the next time. God used their failure for their victory. And that's what he does. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 7.10, For godly sorrow or grief produces repentance leading to salvation not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Job 33.26-27 says this, Then man prays to God, and he accepts him. He sees with his face a shout of joy, and he restores to man his righteousness. He sings before men and says, I sinned and perverted what was right. And it was not repaid to me. What Jesus is saying here is after you realize your spiritual poverty before God, you begin to mourn over your spiritual condition. There's a death that takes place to self. And you begin to attend your own spiritual funeral. There's grief. There's regret. There's sorrow. You enter a point where you wish you had come to Christ sooner. You wish you had surrendered everything to him long ago, preventing you from the stupidity of what you did. And then I begin to see my sin the way God sees it. And then I begin to treat it the way God treats it. The woman who was caught in adultery, as did the prostitute, fell at Jesus' feet, weeping over their sin. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you. I forgive you. In Luke chapter 5, after Jesus displayed his power in Peter catching a huge haul of fish, he came to Jesus and said, Lord, after Peter doubted Jesus, he came up to Jesus and said, Lord, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. And Jesus said to Peter, don't be afraid, Peter. From now on, I will make you fishers of men. 
The Bible says in Psalm 51, 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken, contrite heart. Now, there is a proper morning where I recognize that my sin put Jesus on the cross, that I have offended the holiness of God. But then there's an improper morning. Improper mourning is not grieving over your sinful condition as much as it is feeling bad you got caught. Feeling bad that caused someone pain. Proper mourning leads to a changed heart in obedience and relationship to God. Improper mourning leads to just feeling bad that you did something wrong. There's no heart change. It's an attitude of not wanting to get caught again or not wanting to feel bad again. If there's a motivation to change, it's just one of behavior, not necessarily wanting a change of heart and life. One is God-centered. The other is self-centered. Proper mourning drives a person to Jesus for change. The other looks to self for change. One desires a radical heart change and is driven to the cross of Christ. The other desires a behavioral change and is driven to self for the answer. So which one are you? Are you the type that falls forward towards Jesus when you fail? Or are you trying to hold on to your life and fix things yourself? How is that working out for you? If you're in the latter, then it's time to come to the realization that you can't do it anymore. You need to come to grips with the fact that no matter how much you try, and strive in your own strength, in your own flesh, that your efforts to find happiness will fail. But I've got good news for you. Jesus is waiting for you to become bankrupt so he can give you everything that you desire. For it's there that great comfort and blessing and refreshment will come to you. Yes, listen to me. It's in that time of grief. Jesus comforts you. He says, I do not condemn you. I forgive you. I am going to make all things new in your life. I love you. I do not condemn you. There's an amazing comfort from God as he puts his spirit within you. And he cannot comfort someone who's prideful, who won't let go of themselves and But there is room for Jesus in that person who's humble. And the one who empties himself is the one who is filled of the Lord. When we truly understand the love of God in Jesus, that he was willing to be punished in my place for my sin on the cross, that I spent a portion of my life turning my back on that love, spurning that love and grace. And once the lights go on, I can clearly see It brings me to a point of brokenness. And that's when the comfort of God enters into my life. It is the comfort of God. Truly, when Jesus said, blessed are they who mourn for they shall be comforted. There's a comfort of the Holy Spirit, an assurance of the Holy Spirit alongside my life where he says, it's okay. You're forgiven. I forgive you. I set you free. You don't have to live in this despair any longer. You don't have to live in this depression any longer. You don't have to live in this anxiety any longer. You can move forward from here because I have released you. Have you experienced that comfort from God? Have you experienced the freedom that he has for you in Jesus Christ? 
And the Bible says that repentance leads to times of refreshment and joy. Do you need comfort today? The Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit is the comforter. He comes alongside of us to minister to us and bring us comfort. Your comfort from him is there, ladies and gentlemen. That's his desire for you. And it's there for the asking. And all you have to do is ask and receive. In October 1972, a crowd of 150,000 Europeans gathered between the barracks and the crematories of the Auschwitz extermination camp to honor a man who gave his life to save a fellow prisoner. The martyr, Reverend Maximilian Kolbe, a Franciscan priest who stepped forward to take the place of Sergeant... I can't even read the guy's name. We'll just call him Francis. Uh, It happened in July 1941. Francis had been selected at random by the Nazi guards to die. And when the victim pleaded for his life so that he might see his wife and children, the priest, this Franciscan priest, stepped forward and offered to take the doomed man's place. Reverend Colby uh, told the guards that he was alone in the world and would be willing to die instead of the sergeant. A few weeks later, Reverend Colby died from starvation and a dose of carbolic acid. Francis survived the rigors of Auschwitz and was reunited with his loved ones at the end of the war. At the 1972 ceremonies, he spoke with moving simplicity. He said he wanted to express his thanks for the gift of life he received and wanted to honor Reverend Colby for his heroic, heroic sacrifice. Ladies and gentlemen, hear this. Jesus Christ substituted himself for you so that you don't have to mourn anymore. So that you can receive all that he has. He went to the cross so that he could turn your mourning into dancing and joy. What a savior we serve. And now we have the opportunity to receive from the Lord and comfort those who need comforting with the comfort he has given us. Blessed are those who mourn for the good news of the gospel is it leads to comfort and freedom from the Lord. Where are you at today? Where are you at today? Do you need comfort? The good news of the gospel is you can receive it. And oh, and so much more. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for the comfort of the Holy Spirit. I thank you that you come to those who really just grieve and you fill us anew and afresh with yourself. An awe and a wonder of who you are. The gospel of grace and mercy. Thank you, Jesus, for your comfort. And we ask, Lord, that you will put more of it within us so that we can take it to those who need it. So that we can glorify and honor you. Thank you for loving us so, so well. In Jesus' name, amen.